Electricast. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Earl Brion. I'm your host for the uh, for the Burden of Command podcast here, and I've got a special guest for us today, Mr. Jim Bouchard, the black belt leader, the sensei leader movement, Capitan. Mr. Bouchard, how are you doing today? It's an honor to be with you, sir. Well, good. Nice to have you. So uh, full disclosure for everybody listening, uh, Jim and I have talked quite a few times about leadership, so uh, this is probably going to be one of the more easy, relaxed uh, interviews I've done so far on this podcast. So, Well, I hope so. I, I, I'll try not to make trouble for you. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have it any other way, right? Uh, so, so, Jim, the, the question I like to ask all of my uh, guests, and I'll start with you as well, what does the phrase burden of command mean to you? I'm so glad you, you asked that question because you got two loaded words in there as far as I'm concerned. The first one is burden because leadership is not a burden. It's a privilege. It's an honor, right? And I know the spirit you intend that in, so this is just kind of fun semantic games. And the other <laughs> one is command because, and again, I appreciate that, the application of that word. But, you know, I've been saying for a long time now, especially in, in private business now, the age of command and control is dead. It's over. Right. And if you're mm-hmm. still operating in that mode as an individual or as an organization, uh, you know, you're you're in serious trouble or you're headed for it. And, you know, it's interesting. I know you and I have talked about this. I think people, the average person misunderstands completely what the word command means from a military perspective. I've never met more compassionate leaders, more more people that really care about the people they serve and the people they serve with than, than military leaders. So um, I think the, I think what's happened is in the civilian world we've really misused that word command. So anyway, there's my thoughts. Command, you know, we've got to make sure we're clear on what that's all about. And burden, hell no. Leadership is not a burden. It's a privilege. It's an honor, right? Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is. And, you know, and, and like some of the previous guests have said before, it's kind of the same lines. You know, it's it's uh, responsibility. Absolutely. Uh, is, is Absolutely. what it boils down to. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so... Like, like you said, we, we've talked a lot about this, and, and, and I like that you cleared up the, the military thing, right? Because that is one thing that really does bug me is there's this stereotypical view of the screaming, yelling, snot flying all over the place. And, right. you know, that happens in boot camp, sure. Uh, but outside of that, there there's those folks aren't leaders, right? Those are uh, – they, they, they rely on the power on their collar, uh, and, and so it really doesn't happen. And like Jim was saying, 
you know, the compassion piece, that is such a pivotal piece of, of the military, right? Is you have to love the people around you to be able to put your life on the line for them. And if you aren't taking care of one another, well, mm. how does that happen? And so the the piece yeah, no, there... No, I couldn't agree with you more, but it's interesting because right there's... Go ahead. Oh, we must be having a little bit of a delay here. So oh. what... <laughs> <laughs> no, what I was going to say is the, um, you know, the, the, the kind of... I was the, interrupting you. That was the problem, yeah. <laughs> That's all good. <laughs> well, no, uh, the, the kind of the two primary orders, if you will, we call them 1 and 1A, is mission accomplishment and troop welfare. And, and what all of our great leaders know is you don't get mission accomplishment if you're not taking care of the troops. Yeah, you know, but it's interesting because every time, you know, we can come up with all kinds of, of rules and, and guidelines and whatnot, there's an exception always, right? Mm-hmm. That's the cool thing about rules. Rules are made to be bent, broken, ignored sometimes, but uh, there's principles that are undying. But this idea, you know, there, there's a place for yelling and screaming. I, I'm, I'm not naive. Um, you know, I think too many people go too far the other way. For one thing, you know, people have passion and emotion involved in, in leadership situations. And sometimes we're going to come un- unglued a little bit, um, or maybe not unglued, is we're going to become very intense at times as well. And a lot of times that is during a period of, of caring. When the drill sergeant's yelling at those troops in boot camp, it's because, you know, he sincerely, the ones that I've met anyway, they sincerely care. They're preparing them for a life and death situation. You know, when you sign on for that, you know what you're getting into. Uh, you know, you join a football team, you know what you're getting into in the locker room. Um, I went through it in the fire service, you know, it was, there was a paramilitary type of atmosphere. So, you know, there are times when the yelling and screaming is necessary and there's times when it's really an act, it, that in itself is an act of compassion. But the problem is, like I said, it's misused so much in, in civilian life and in business. And most of the time, you know what it is? People confuse that with, uh, with com- confuse command in a military sense with dictatorial uh, mm-hmm. process in the civilian application and that's where you got to be very careful and again there's you know <laughs> we could go on and on there's a place for that once in a while too but boy that that dictatorial mode has to be short-lived right or else you're you're gonna you're not gonna be <laughs> you're not gonna in- engender the uh loyalty trust and and uh affection of your people very long well yeah i mean you know because at the end of the day somebody's got to make the decision Right. Right. And, and it, it's about, you know, there's, uh, and I know you have talked about these stories before, but uh, the, the one scene that I think plays this out uh, visually for people to really be able to grasp is uh, in, in the movie Lone Survivor. Um, at the very beginning of the movie, they're in the mountains of Afghanistan. The SEAL team's there to, to, to do some surveillance, and they get stumbled upon by the, the goat herders. And the team's trying to figure out what to do. Well, there's a bunch of enlisted guys, and there's the one, the, the lieutenant, who's the person in command on scene. And they played out very well uh, how this thing actually happens because, you know, the, the lieutenant could just say, do this, and they're going to do it. You know, but he listens to everybody's feedback. You know, they have the discussion right. of, well, we can tie them up. We can do this. This is the ramifications of each one of these. But there finally comes a point where he says, this is the one we're going with. And that's where that, quote, dictatorial thing comes in uh, when you use it wisely, right, mm-hmm. is, is listen but make the decision and commit going forward. Right. That's why these things are so dynamic, you know. Um, that's why we can't be condemned to just one particular, even a couple of leadership styles. We have to be articulate as, as many as possible because each situation calls for a different approach, and we have to be able to be facile. And even the role of leader and, and follower needs to be something that we can— 
shift rapidly from, like you said, that lieutenant soliciting the input. Um, it's not always the, the, you know, the prudent thing to do. Sometimes you have to make the decision quickly. And then, of course, you, you hope that you enjoy the, th- what I believe strongly are the three greatest assets that a leader can have is that respect, trust, and loyalty. Because then people who need to respond to those commands in that, in that moment, right, there's a, there's a contract, right, a predetermined contract that they're going to follow you because they trust you, not just because you're yelling loud. And we have to be careful, though, because that gets into that. There's a, there's a movement now in leadership studies, right, about the word collectivism is coming up again, particularly when studying indigenous cultures, right? And uh, a lot of indigenous cultures, particularly Native American and whatnot, a lot of them had more of a collective uh, approach to leadership. But, of course, we conflate that a lot of times with communism and that type of thing, right, in a political sense. So that's not what they're talking about in leadership studies. They're talking about exactly what you said. Um, is is the group think sometimes stronger than the individual think? And I don't know. That's a pretty interesting thing to go down because I, I was just reading a study where some uh, some psychologists and anthropologists were were figuring out that uh, probably the distinguishing characteristic of human being is is that we really aren't very good thinkers individually. Mm-hmm. It's right. It's our collective thinking that really separates us from even our closest cousins like the chimpanzees and whatnot. That's kind of disturbing to think of them as cousins. but <laughs> hey, For some of us, that might be an upgrade, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but they are. They're very close, right, to us uh, you know, physiologically. And, and, uh, but they, they tend to think very individualistically, a little bit collectively. We tend to think very collectively. So it's interesting. That's where, that's where it's heading. So that's why I keep you know, shouting that same... That same uh, meme over and over again that the age of command and control is dead. Um, yeah. People are just not responding to it, right? That that do as I say, not as I do thing is it work. Well, it doesn't even work for two year old kids, does it? <laughs> yeah. Well, no. I mean, you know, because yeah. you, uh, I mean, you kind of hit there on it with the. Uh, I mean, I actually heard the term collectivism, but uh, you know, uh, the the words we use because this is something my partner and I uh, teach a lot from from the leadership phalanx is is cognitive diversity. Mm. Um, and, and it's it's the same thing. And there's studies. There's a uh, he's a mathematician, Scott Page, out of the University of Michigan, and he has mathematically proven that there's no point where adding more perspective is a negative thing. So, you know, if you ask ten people what an outcome is, or what the outcome is going to look like, and however you measure success, you're going to see success. You add an eleventh one, you're going to get a better outcome. You add the twelfth one. Now, is the more people you add, the slower or the, the slider that margin of increase is, but you never hit a negative return. And uh, he's got a lot of great studies out there. There was one uh, that he breaks down. It was uh, Netflix. Uh, I think there was about 10 years or so ago, Netflix put out a, uh, I want to say it was a $10 million prize. I could be wrong on that. But if you could increase the accuracy of their algorithm when it would suggest what people liked, uh, but I think it was 10%, you won the $10 million. It may have only been a million dollars. I may just be throwing too many 10s in there. But the point is, is there was like a thousand or more groups that came in. And as individual groups, they were able to get it up to, you know, like 2%, 3%, something like that. Mm -hmm. And then slowly you started seeing these groups come together. And then it went from all these thousands of groups down to, you know, 10 or 15 groups. And then they got up into the 8 or 9% range. 
And so what Netflix is hoping doesn't happen now is they all come together because they might actually hit that 10% improvement. Mm. No, that's fa- that's fascinating. And, it, you know, you're hitting on a lot of the stuff that uh, folks like Jeff Dalton and the Agile uh, bunch, and he's, he'd be a great guest for you. The other thing, though, you know, is, again, there's always, f- first of all, I want to say, you know, isn't it amazing that we need all these academic studies? This is one of the frustrating things about this business, right? Right. All these academic studies to verify what we've known for centuries, mm-hmm. that, that people tend to work better when they're cooperating, right? <laughs> and right. the trick, so the real trick and really what we're trying to do with Sensei Leader Movement, right, is is make sure that we're actually doing something about it. You know what I mean? When we get in the room, this is it's all nice to talk about these things and, and whatnot, but let's figure out exactly, you know, how to do it and, and make sure that we are. The the one downside to to the you know, getting all the different perspectives, and we always have to be cognizant of it, right? Because there's always a a, beast, a flip side, so to speak, um, is there are times because sometimes leaders get bogged down, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because if you're doing it, if you're if you're collecting that information with the sincere intent, right, to make an informed decision, and you have the time to to do it, then that's what you should be doing. But there are times when decisions need to be made fast, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes sometimes a leader out of cowardice or insecurity, or you know, you mentioned sometimes I've seen it a lot in in government work where. You know, people are afraid to rock the boat. They don't want to go, but it happens in private sector as well. Um, they're afraid of, of consequences, right? And sometimes very rationally. But damn, sometimes you just got to step up. That's part of like you mentioned, you know, leadership is responsibility. That's part of the responsibility. Step up, make the decision, and move along. And uh, what did Mr. Farragut say, Admiral Farragut? Damn the torpedoes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Full speed ahead. You got, we worked a lot in Mobile, Alabama this year, so I've gotten intimate with... Uh, the writings of Admiral Farragut. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and it's, you know, you're right. And it was, uh, so we're recording this during the, the celebration week of the, the 50th anniversary of the landing on the moon. Oh, amazing, huh? It is, it is. And, you know, one of my, my heroes, actually, the I just released an episode on it earlier today, uh, Gene Kranz. Right, and, right. Uh, so I've been re-listening to uh, Failure is Not an Option, and there was one piece in there that then I hadn't really picked up on before. If I had, I forgot I picked up on it. But, you know, he was talking about, he goes, the stakes were so high and the time windows were so short, we didn't have the luxury of having these conversations in real time. Mm-hmm. Part of our task was leading up to a mission to try to think of all of these failures that could happen, have the conversations in advance, so when they did happen, we could just act. Right, right. And, 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 that, and that's it, right? That's that's really in a nutshell. You just described. You just you painted a perfect picture of of true confidence. You know, surety of an outcome is foolishness. Mm. You know, depending on surety of an outcome is foolishness. True confidence is not surety of an outcome. It's preparation. It's surety of preparation that you've done everything you can in this moment to be prepared for what you're facing right now. And sometimes that has to come really quick. And uh, I'm so glad you brought up the moon mission anyway. It, it, I'd love to tell you a cool story about that, but I'm going to release a meme on Saturday. I'll give you the the preview is that, you know, on Saturday we're going to be celebrating that 50 years ago today, you know, the Apollo team rendered the word impossible meaningless. Mm-hmm. And I, re- I really believe that with all my heart. That was just an amazing event. And sadly, uh, some people have forgotten about it. And, of course, a lot of people alive now didn't experience that. So, Yeah, well, I mean, that's that's the other thing, too, is like we're coming into a period right now where – uh, you run into a lot of people who don't even remember shuttle missions. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, that was a that was a big thing growing up. Is like every time there was a shuttle launch, like they'd roll the big TV into the classroom, and you all got together around and watch it. And uh, you know, I I, I saw the, uh, the the Challenger explosion live on right. TV, and it's like, man. So mm-hmm. no, but, and you know the cool thing about that too is that idea. You know, you can't separate leadership and courage. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about courage in many different applications, many different layers. But one of the most moving things that I've seen recently was at the Kennedy Center and the uh, the display for Challenger. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, one of the most moving things is those people. And remember now we're in this age when when something like that happens, the immediate backlash is, well, we can't sacrifice lives for this. We can't have to take this risk. Those people, and I'm sure you went through this in the military as well, right? They prepared for that. They had they had their wills made out. They had everything in place before they leave for that mission. They they understand the enormous risk, and, and so that that to me is just you know the absolute purest expression of courage, knowing the danger you're going into and, and doing it anyway. So well, yeah, that's it, leadership. Yeah. It is. It is, and they all you said they all accepted. I mean, you know, I think uh, one of the things gets lost in the history of the space program is is um, how many people we didn't lose right uh, right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean john glenn we almost lost him uh scott carpenter we almost lost him as i said this morning we lost uh uh ed white roger chaffee and virgil grissom on the very first apollo mission uh but there were so many people that we didn't lose like i said john glenn he was so close they thought that uh, he his heat shield had ejected right and they were going through all these issues to try to fix that. Scott Carpenter, he had issues gui- with his guidance, and they thought mm-hmm. he was going to skip off into into space, and they had to fix all this stuff on the fly with the world watching. I mean, talk about pressure. The world was watching our enemies <laughs> and our allies, you know. And, and isn't that the difference? I remember seeing, I saw a, a special recently because I've been watching, I was so absorbed in that when I was a kid, and, uh, you know, I've been watching every special I can on it, and the idea that, the, you know, the Russians had their failures, too, but they made sure that they were kept secret while, mm-hmm. while we broadcast ours. And, you know, you brought up something so cool, too, that recognition of success. You know, um, there was a there was a, an emergency landing of a of a commercial airliner. I think it was last week or the week before. And I remember getting so angry about the headline because the headline was just focused totally on, you know, emergency landing, uh, engine fail, blah, blah, and not one mention. Not one mention of the courage, not even the names of the pilot and the co-pilot that brought that plane down safely. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. we, we, we need to celebrate that more. We need to celebrate the, the successes. Um, it's certain we want to be f- fully aware of the failures. We want to acknowledge our failures and embrace them as opportunities to, to grow. But at the same time, boys, it, it would be nice if we hear you know, success stories and leadership lately. <laughs> no, it, it, you're, you're right. It's, it's, which, uh, which is what you're doing, by the way. So I should say, say that that's a good, good promo, right? Hey, well, there you go. Appreciate that. No, it's like, um, I'm trying to remember who it was, but there was somebody, um, it may have actually been Zig Ziglar now that I think about it, but he made a comment. He said, you know, everybody always argues, what's the toughest position in sports? Is it a quarterback? Is it a pitcher? He goes, I'm here to tell you right now, it's a goalie in hockey. He goes, because those guys go out there and they do their job 93, 94% right. He goes, but whenever they mess up, there's a big red <laughs> siren that goes off yeah. and, and everybody knows, hey, this guy just screwed up. <laughs> oh, I can identify. I, I know you you were a goalie, right? 
Uh, well, uh, street hockey goalie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See, I, I was a kicker in football, and it's the same thing, man. You, you know, as long as you're putting them through the pipes, you know, nobody even notices you. But, man, when you miss that thing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And i got to tell you, I, for the record, for all my brothers and sisters that kick footballs, there's no such thing as a, chi- as a chip shot, right, <laughs> when you got... 7,000 pounds of humanity trying to take your head off when you can. <laughs> I bet. No, I, I can only imagine. That's, you know, that's why I always laugh when, uh, uh, you know, being here at Indianapolis, uh, Pat McAfee, right? Uh, he, that that, guy, oh, he's a riot, isn't he? He yeah. is. It, and I always love whenever he would get in that whole controversy about kick, uh, kickers aren't football players. I was like, okay. <laughs> they, are, they are. Once that damn ball leaves your foot, let me tell you. <laughs> then, yeah. you're, then you're the same as everyone else. So. Right. Yeah. 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 Uh, so yeah, so you mentioned uh, uh, the the sensei leader movement there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so what's going on with that right now? Oh man, we're so excited. We just we're finishing up uh, the details for our trip to Kenya in in November, at least to Kenya. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we're also looking at Uganda, uh, Tanzania, and possibly Ghana on that trip. But um, if not on that trip, but because what we're trying to do there with our partners and another person would be a great guest for you. She got terrific stories about her. Uh, leadership initiatives is is Nana Wanjo. Um, she's our partner in Kenya, okay. and she's doing great work um, over there with empowering women, mm. especially women entrepreneurs and leaders. But at any rate, yeah, we're putting the finishing touches on that, so we're looking forward to that trip. Um, we'll be back on the road again in a couple of weeks. Um, I don't ask me where I'm going. <laughs> I'm, try, I'm trying to. Pit, I think we start in Pittsburgh, going to South Carolina, oh, uh, back go. back out to California, down to Texas, and then. Then uh, off to um, to Africa. So, yeah, we're really excited about all that. And what it's all about is, you know, they say it's lonely at the top. Well, it shouldn't be. First of all, what we're talking about with Sensei Leader Movement has nothing to do with rank, title, or position of authority. It, it, we're talking about embracing leadership at, at all levels, right? And it's about supporting and developing human-centric leaders. And we're mm-hmm. developing this network of, of great people all over the world. So, um, you know, and that's that's the hope that people, you know, we're a nexus so people can can communicate with one another, support one another, help one another grow and develop as. And, you, you know, I keep emphasizing that word human centric leader. Uh, that's that's our sole focus is on the humanity of leadership. Uh, we don't deal with any of the technical management side. There's great people to do that. Um, we don't we don't need me messing around with that. Uh, so we we stay and a lot of it, you know, as the name implies, a lot of it comes from my experience uh, 30 plus years uh, teaching martial arts, leading a martial arts organization, and learning from those folks, uh, especially the the little dragons, the three to six year olds. <laughs> I probably share more stories in a presentation from from those guys than almost any other group of people. Well, I mean, yeah, I I can imagine kids will keep you humble. They 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 don't know how to sugarcoat it, right? Uh, you got to work to be a leader to kids, right? <laughs> absolutely. Well, I tell you this, I'll share this story with you here because I know all the work you're doing in Africa. And, and uh, so I, I travel to D.C. quite a lot with my, my day job. And, uh, you know, the last probably half a dozen or more times I've been there, uh, my dr- the, the driver usually grab a, a Uber from Reagan National to wherever I'm going. Uh, it has been from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. And this last time I asked the guy, I said, OK, I think I, I, I think I scared him a little bit. Cause I said, what is it with Nigerians in D.C.? And I figured, well, yeah, I probably worded that a little poorly. So I was backed up. I said, you know, <laughs> my, my last few drivers have been from Nigeria. And it seems like like the secret's out about how great D.C. is in Nigeria. And then he changed. He realized I wasn't, you know, uh, trying to be a jerk. He's like, oh, 
man, in Nigeria, we love America. He goes, there's so much opportunity here. There's not that much opportunity back home. He goes, I come to America. I can have a good job. I can make money. I can get an education. He's, and he starts telling me his life story. He's like, I'm, I'm here for construction management. There's not a lot of great construction in Nigeria. So I come home or I come to America. I go to school. I save my money and I go home. I've got a warehouse now that I sell beauty products out of until I come back. And then my goal is to put Nigeria on the map as a construction place in right. Africa. Right. He goes, we love America. He goes, the only thing that we don't understand is why Americans don't love America more. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the fact, right? <laughs> yeah, well, well, you know, that's it's a crisis of abundance, right? But no, I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I wish I could remember who wrote the article, but it was in International uh, Leadership Association, one of their books that they publish every year, a compilation of different articles that they collect. And and this was a woman from, um, I don't remember if she was, probably from South Africa, I think. But at any rate, she was she was talking about, she was urging more Africans to highlight African leadership because there are tremendous, tremendous leaders. And again, at all levels, I'm not just talking about political and business leaders, but plenty of great people there. And they are trying to make Africa strong. And, you know, um, PLO uh, Lumumba, one of my favorites, and I love how he says it. He says it's time for Africa to take, the, take her place at the world table, at the global table, as diners, not as waiters, you see. Mm. And it, it's just a great perspective. And in the youth movement there. So it's interesting. Sometimes people, you know, they say, why are you going to Africa? You're going to, you, know, you know, and I don't go anywhere really to teach. That's not the mission anyway. It's to share. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's two ways. Um, I'm hoping to learn so much from, you know, we've got some really interesting meetings lined up. Uh, and, you know, from everyone, people on the ground, there's one guy I want to meet who opened, uh, out of nothing, opened a little salad shop in Nairobi. And I, I caught him on YouTube, actually, is where I heard of him. And I thought, what a great example of leadership. I mean, he really had nothing. And he's now expanding and, and basically franchising these things. He's, you know, and, and that's the type of leadership we need in addition to you know, the, the uh, conventional sense of a leader as someone with a position of authority in business or politics. So, no, it's happening. There's lots of great stuff there happening. And like I said, to me, that, that's a trip for sharing. That, that's really what it's all about. And I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal as much, if not more, from them than they can ever hope to take from me. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and that's what it's all about, right? I mean, what, what we do is, is it's as much about educating ourselves as it is sharing knowledge with anyone else. And, sure. You know, we, we, right. we talked about this in, in, in the beginning. You know, it's, it's, we have a lot of people out there who act like this is like newfound knowledge. Like, oh, here are the 37 oh, and God, a half no. steps. No. And, no. Yeah. It, <laughs> this, this is basic dawn of man stuff we're talking about here. And it's about working together. You know, that's the big thing, too. I think too many people conflate leadership with, you know, you're going to go and you're going to, as a leader, you're going to go and start telling people what to do and, and, you know, this and that. Again, that's that command and control mentality. No, it's about going and listening. It's about sharing your, your piece of the pie. And it's about, you know, figuring out what can, what can we do together. You know, that's the idea, you know, to me that the, it, yeah, I like to say a progressive view of leadership. Hell no, this stuff isn't new. It's not rocket surgery. You know, what did Lutz <laughs> say? When the people are not in awe of your majesty, then great majesty has been achieved, right? Right. What was he saying? You know, it's, it's we, we've got we've to roll up our sleeves and, and work together. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, you know, again, and, and uh, I like that because that's what I tell folks. It's like, look, 
you know how you want to be led, go lead that way. Yeah, I like you saying that, too, because that's one of the great lessons, too, that we always have to keep revisiting as leaders is that as leaders, we also want and need to be led. I mean, I do believe it's a basic human human need. And again, I said earlier, we have to understand and we have to be facile in switching those roles. You know, there's a quick story. When I was working in the shipyard uh, years ago, I was building Trident submarines down in Connecticut, and these this pipe assembly came in. We were a little ahead of schedule, so this pipe assembly came in, and, and it because it was out of schedule, it wouldn't fit on the boat, mm. right? And these two old grizzled pipe fitters, been in the yard for 40 years or more, they go over there and they take a Sharpie and they mark the wrapping of the pipe two places. They cut it here, cut it here, we'll snake it on the boat, put it back together. No, that couldn't happen, right? Mm. The, white, the white hat supervisors had to come along. I kid you not, as, my, as I remember it, probably about two weeks of meetings where that thing just sat on the dock. Then it gets sent by barge back to Quonset, Rhode Island, about an 80-mile trip by water back and forth. Shows up back in the yard about six weeks later, probably a cost of close to a half million bucks you know, to get this thing back and forth. I don't know. <laughs> and what do you suppose that thing looked like when it got back? <laughs> probably cut right where they said to cut it. Exactly, right? Yeah. Now, what if those supervisors, what if they had adopted the mentality we're talking about and just switched roles and became followers at that point and respected mm-hmm. the experience and the wisdom of those two guys on the front line that knew what the hell they were doing, right? Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, we'll, we'll t- let's tie that back into the, uh, we've kind of been talking about the Apollo stuff since it's, it's that time frame right now. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, the Apollo 13, uh, mm-hmm. there's a scene, they kind of pay homage to it in the movie, uh, but there's a, a random light that went off and nobody knew what it was except for one guy, right? And it, it went off one time in like one simulation but in the movie, the way they show it is like the light goes off and he says, you know, cycle this switch. It's a very brief. But if you hear the story, uh, I can't remember the guy's name now, but they talk about this guy was the guy that like he was their rain man. Right. He knew and remembered everything. Mm-hmm. And they said as soon as he said, flip this switch and it should go away. Nobody questioned him. They knew this is the guy who knows his shit. This is a guy that right. you want to listen to in this situation. And they just did it. And then it, it, it moved on. You know, and like you said, when you look at, at the time constraints that they had trying to figure out how to get those guys back. Yeah. If they had spent a significant amount of time trying to worry about that instead of worrying about the voltage, worrying about the carbon, uh, carbon dioxide buildup, all that good stuff. Yeah. That could have had a drastic turn over one no, stupid no. button. And that's, that goes back to what you said. Sometimes you just have to do it very quickly, but to collect, you know, the perspectives. The same thing, you know, just, just before the LEM touchdown on, on 11, right, that they got that, those two alarms, the 1202 and the 1201 alarm, which mm-hmm. nobody in, in mission control knew what it was. Fortunately, they had lines of communication open, and somebody in another office who dealt with the software said, yeah, no, that's good. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and, right. Right. And imagine if, if uh, I believe Gene Kranz was at the helm of, of that, what the landing, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he says, you know, hey, yep, that's good. I mean, he didn't sit there and question, who's this guy from, you know. Right. No, he... But that's the other thing, too. That's another characteristic of leadership. You want the trust, the loyalty, and the respect of the people you serve, right? But they need your trust, loyalty, and respect, too. And that's how you get it. And, you know, that's mm. one of the biggest arguments that I get sometimes. And, you know, I still work with uh, incarcerated kids, too. Right. And they, they really, it's really neat because their um, respect paradigm is a very focused one. You know what I mean? Right. It's it's uh, it's very. I, I hesitate to. S- I'm going to say simple. It's very simple. 
And we lose sight of that sometimes, in, especially in a complex organization. And the question that they have, but it always comes up in CEO workshops too, C- C-suite workshops. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll show somebody respect when they show me. And I <laughs> always ask them, I say, well, wait a minute. Who's the leader? Who's supposed to go first? Yeah. Right? So we need to show that, that respect. And, if we, and that's you know, the only argument I get for that. Well, sometimes you can't trust people. I say, well, what the hell are they doing working with you then? Amen. Right? I mean, that's, that should be part of the filtering process. If I can't trust somebody, they, they shouldn't be on my team. Oh, yeah. No, that's uh, – <laughs> so whenever we're teaching, uh, you know, uh, we, we teach – we call them the 11 shields of the phalanx because that's all a phalanx mm-hmm. is, is, is uh, uh, a formation where the shields are kind of interlocked to make everything stronger. For you're, people you're, put, you're putting me in a you're putting me in a very Roman state of mind now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> but you know, the one thing I, I, I say is like, look, the one thing you have to be comfortable with as a leader is it's your fault. Mm-hmm. It's your fault, and I get that pushback too. And they're like, oh, it's not always my fault. It's this guy. Why is that no, person on your no, team? No, no, no. It's That's always fault. my fault. What <laughs> yeah. did, what did, I know you're a huge Patton fan too. What did he say? A, a, a good general officer. Will always take the blame for anything. I'm paraphrasing, but always take the blame whether or not it's it's his fault, and will always give credit to others whether or not it, they deserve it. Right. Right. And that's that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, because like you said, and, and always challenge. I throw it out. Okay, let's talk about it. What, what is what in this situation is not your fault? And and we work through all the things. Like, no, you, you didn't set the vision clear enough. You didn't define what success looks like clear enough. You didn't put the right person on the team. You did these things as the leader. You you just hit, we could open up a huge can of worms here, because you just hit right exactly the nail on the head of most of what's wrong with political leadership today, right? Yeah. It's not my, it's not my fault. It's not my responsibility, because it's mm. hard to get elected when you're saying, oh, yeah, I'm sorry, I, you know, I messed up, right? You've got to blame the other person, and we're locked in this constant state of mortal combat now, you know, particularly between two major political parties where, you know, one wins by denigrating, destroying, vilifying the other, right? Yeah. And the sad thing is, and I don't want to get too far off on this, but you look at something as simple to solve is the immigration situation. And, I, mm-hmm. and I'm adamant about that. That is a, a, a group I could assemble. Well, you know, again, the kids I work with that are incarcerated, often a lot of them are very brilliant kids too. Right. And we talk about these real issues. And I'm telling you, they could solve this in 20 minutes. Oh, yeah. But, right? But it's hard when it has to be mine, right? And everything that went wrong is the other guy's fault, right? <laughs> you know? Right. And these people forget now we have YouTube. We, we saw the speech from five years ago when they were on the other side of it, right? So it's, you know, and pick your poison. It doesn't matter which team you're talking about. So, well, yeah, yeah like, like you said, and, and there's not just, uh, <laughs> there, there's not just two, or, or there's not just one right answer, right? So, um, yeah. No, right? No, they're usually the best one isn't either your answer or my answer. It's the one we find together with my answer and your answer is the base, right? So, and that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's two things, right. So you got one side that, and, and this is a good conversation to have. I don't see this as being going on a tangent because this is part of the, the responsibilities and burden of command is making tough decisions, right? And yeah, so, so. You got one side that's saying, oh, we can't build a wall. We can't restrict our borders. We need better immigration policies. And you got one that we can't focus on immigration policies because we need a border wall. Well, no, we, we need a little bit of both. We need better border security and we need 
better uh, and easier path to citizenship for the people who do want to come here. Mm-hmm. There's compromise, and, and that's the thing. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell does a fantastic job. He's got a TED Talk that's titled Spaghetti Sauce, and he goes through all of these issues, and Spaghetti Sauce is one of them. It was talking about Pepsi and like how sweet Pepsi should be. And at the end of it, he comes up, he goes, the moral of all these stories is there's no perfect answer. There's only perfect answers. That's that's a neat way to look at it. The only, yeah. the only, the only issue I take is with the word compromise. My friend uh, Neil Dukoff, and I'm, I'm giving you a bunch of people that make great guests for you, <laughs> but hey, Neil wrote a book called No Compromise Leadership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the idea, because the word compromise has a certain connotation that we're sacrificing something, right? It, it's not that at all. It's collectively, like I said, we're coming up with a better way. There's good parts of what I have, good parts of what you have. And then, you know, that kind of circles back to that idea. Uh, and, and instead of fault, why don't we say responsibility? But, um, you know, Goodwin's Law, right, that all conversations end up uh, somehow evoking Hitler and the Nazis. <laughs> right. Well, we, here we have Belichick's law because somehow I always bring it to the, to the New England Patriots. And that's one of the remarkable things. You know, people have, and a lot of people in leadership have studied these guys, right? How does, how does this organization maintain such an incredible record of success? And a lot of it is you watch press conferences with almost any team in the league and, you know, week after week, you hear somebody blaming another unit or blaming somebody mm-hmm. else, right? If you ever heard a New England Patriot, and if you have, he's probably gone the next week, right? right. Blame somebody else. Every single person on that team, when they're doing their pressers, oh, geez, you know what? I could have thrown a few, and Brady's the, the best one of all. Yeah. yeah. You know, I should have thrown a little bit better. I didn't make good decisions. And Edelman says, well, I dropped two critical things, you know, in the defense as well. It's not really the offense's fault. We didn't, it, they're all taking blame. So, you know, what, what an amazing power there is if we have a team where everybody's saying, hey, it's my fault, but not in a bad way, right? Yeah. It's, it's, I'm acknowledging this. It's my, my responsibility, and then quickly, right, quickly shift gears. you got to double-clutch that. Oh, nobody knows what that is anymore. <laughs> <laughs> now you know how old I am. We've got to double-clutch that thing and say, let's get it rolling in the right, right direction again, right? And so. Yeah. Well, no, and again, and that's, that's you know, so you're, you're, you hit another one that is a, a sweet spot of mine is, is the uh, – I talk about the power of ownership, right? And it's, right, it's scary. Right. But, you know, when you take ownership of the situation, you take all the power, on yourself, you you, mm-hmm. you 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 don't let somebody else be able to judge you and and make the corrections for you. Right, you get to figure it out. And like you said, right there, I guarantee you, as soon as Edelman, as soon as Brady, as soon as even Belichick, hey, I screwed up. The next thing is, this is what I'm going to do to fix it, and then mm-hmm. they go fix it. Great, great leadership book, uh, The Education of a Coach, which analyzes Belichick's development and. You know, very interesting because I know people, wherever I travel, people hate that he says this. But, you know, the famous thing, we're on to Cincinnati, right? <laughs> right. We're on to, that's it. That's it. The, the, you know, the minute that game is over, it's over, you know. Yeah. Now, they're going to go into analysis mode. I know you, you, you military guys call it what? After action assessment, right? Yep. That's critical. That's a critical part of it. But it's not lamenting. It's not, right, not uh, wallowing in misery. It's just looking at it clinically. It's over. It's done. Can't do anything about that. Let's let's look at what we can change, right? Well, yeah, and it's it's the <laughs> it's the kind of the exact opposite. And and I'm I'm using your Patriots here again, but you know, look at uh, what happened to the Seahawks after the uh, uh, 
he should have handed it off to Marshawn play, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they relived that the entire offseason. <laughs> There's the danger. And you know what the thing is, too, um, and the brilliance of, of, of a leader like Belichick, and, and you know, I could cite other examples of this, too. The thing is, when, we, when you lament that, that mistake or you lament that bad decision, you're going forward assuming that the next crisis you face or the next challenge you face is going to be the same. And it's not, you see. And too many times, whether it's a team or a business, right, they, they work so hard at, at obsessing over that particular situation that they forget that that situation, and, and again, I'm going to bring it back to my roots in martial arts, you know. I, I used to tell my students, study techniques, study tradition, but don't be hung by it, right? Don't be <clears throat> hung by the technique. The technique is a means, not an ends. It's to help us prepare, and then we've got to try to you know, introduce a lot of variables so that we can apply those things in different, t- different situations. And it's the same, exactly the same with leadership. The Seahawks, you're right, and that's a great example. Um, and it, it, it's funny because statistically, somebody did it, a mathematical study of that, and you know what? Found out that the pass was probably the higher percentage play mm-hmm. in, that, in that situation. Isn't that incredible? Well, that, I mean, that, it, uh, it, it, no, it, it is. Did, it didn't work, but, you know. Uh, well, you know if and Marshawn, I right? If Marshawn had run it up the middle and the Pats had been sitting there waiting for him, they would have been crapping all over him for that, right? Well, yeah, it's it's a uh, uh, what is it the the fine yeah. line between genius and insanity, right? And yeah. and I don't want to turn it into a full blown sports show, but you know the thing is, <laughs> that's okay with me. <laughs> if you if you watch that play, yeah. if Malcolm Butler wasn't at the exact spot at the exact right time, that yeah. play pays off and they score a touchdown. Well, there, there it is in a nutshell, too. And that, I know that's been beaten to death, but, you know, you hear the interviews with them. How did he know to be there? They prepared for that situation, yeah. right? They, they didn't know that was going to happen, but it was a likely probability yeah. in that particular look, right? And, and he was there. And that's, and that's the thing. So now we're back to confidence again, right? Pro- right. That, prop, that preparation, knowing that, you know, I don't know if I'm going to win the fight, but I better <laughs> damn well know I deserve to be in the ring. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, and that's what everybody, so anybody, uh, military, uh, I'm sure at NASA, anything like that has been part of any type of planning. What everyone that really understands is the planning process isn't about what will happen, it's about what could happen. Amen. You know, there's, there's the famous story of Eisenhower, uh, as soon as the D-Day invasion kicks off, he rips the plans up and throws them in the trash. Because mm-hmm. as soon as it kicks off, they're no good. They're, they're right. good to tell them what happens when things go wrong mm-hmm. and how to fix it. But once you start action, you don't know what's going to happen. Mm. Angelo Dundee used to tell Muhammad Ali all the time, he said, you plan for the fight, but you can't fight with a plan. Right. <laughs> that's, that's a great way to say it. It yeah. is. It is. And, uh, you're in boxing, uh, I love that, but I like the way Mike Tyson said it better. He says... Uh, I, I can't do the Mike Tyson voice, but he says, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> Every, everybody got a plan until they get punched in the face. That's about the only hey. impression I can do. <laughs> hey, hey, there you go. That was, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. That, that is recorded for all of eternity now, just so you know. Well, I, got, I, met, I met his trainer, Kevin Rooney, one time. And, and the funny thing is, Kevin Rooney talks exactly the same. And I couldn't imagine when they were really having their outs, you know, as a yeah, uh, uh, Kevin, I, I, I don't want to fight no more. No, 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 come on, Mike, get in the ring. Come on, we got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't imagine that going back and forth. But yeah. Oh, man. 
Oh man! Well, we're look, way, we, we're way off the rails now. Aren't oh, we? we are. Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, we've we stayed on it <laughs> no. there. I mean, there's there, there's a lot there. So it's, there this go. is good. Uh, I think people get a, if nothing else, they'll get a chuckle out of your Mike Tyson impersonations here. So, <laughs> well, listen, you got to have some fun when you're exploring leadership too, because it can get a, it get it can get to be a very ominous study and practice if you don't bring some humor to it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, so there you go again. Now, now that that's another thing. So. Uh, so I was watching a very interesting uh, documentary, if you will, on uh, Atari. And they were talking about this same thing. They were talking about how Atari was, the, the, their DNA was fun. And, and they, they were kind of like the original Netflix as far as work practices go. He said, I didn't care when people came to work. I didn't care when they left. I didn't care about any of that stuff. What I cared about was, did you get the work that you needed to get done, done? Was it done to a high quality that's all I cared about. Mm. If, if I gave you, if you your work task was this and you got it done in 30 minutes and then you went home and it was a good quality, well, good. You just did your work for the day. Go home. Have fun. But that was the way they worked, right? Mm. And then they got acquired by, um, who was it that acquired them? It was one of the big tech companies at the time. Mm-hmm. But they changed it, like overnight. It was oh, corporate. Yeah, yeah. It was stuffy. Yeah. And, and that was the whole reason the, the company collapsed, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, so that type of work attitude, I guess where I'm going with this is it's great. But if you could have found, again, we're talking about the, uh, the middle ground here a little bit. What would have what have, would the scene have looked like if this company, they, they acquired it for, you know, 20 or 30 million, which was huge at the time. Mm-hmm. And then they essentially killed it by stuffing a different culture into it. Yeah, there it is, that, that conundrum of the imposition of culture. And, yeah, we face that a lot. In fact, one of, the, one, of the, uh, one of our, I guess, most often requested focuses is on overcoming resistance to change. Mm-hmm. And the reason that ties in with this is because, you know, my attitude about it is, well, why do you want to overcome the resistance? Why not pay attention to it? That resistance, and if somebody is brave enough to offer some resistance, that's a gift, you know? Pay attention to it. Why are people resistant to whatever you're trying to offer? And a lot of times it's because something's being imposed. And one of the toughest ones, you're exactly right, it happens a lot with mergers and acquisitions, is that imposition of a different culture and and a different set and brand of leadership. That's difficult. Um, And one of the things, and I'm sure you've encountered this too, you know, I, I, I can say honestly that I can be a very judgmental person at time. And I've had to train myself to be very non judgmental. When I go to an organization, they may be doing everything exactly the opposite of the way I think it should be done, but they might be operating very successfully and people may be very happy and productive. Mm-hmm. And right. So it's a matter of looking at that. It's looking at, at a culture, say, why not instead of how can I fix it or change it? Sometimes you look at it and say, well, why is this working <laughs> where it isn't working? Wh- you know, why isn't it working in this area? And those are the things to focus. But that idea of overcoming the resistance to change. No, you know, usually when there's a usually when there's resistance, there's a damn good reason for it. Right. Right. And so you're either going to decide you're going to try to do a sales job. Right. And that's that's the right. The the word is buy in. Right. How do we get people to buy into this? I said, (laughs) you better stop trying to get them buy in and start asking. Right. Because buying in means you're trying to sell them something. And that means, you know, none of us like to be sold. Right. Yeah. If you're if you're doing a sell job, it means people don't want it for whatever reason. Now figure it out, right? 
Yep. And then you won't have to overcome the resistance. In fact, when you open it up, and I mean, don't mean that just as clever. You know, when you ask, when you involve people in a process of change, a process of transition, as many players as you can early and often, they'll come up with the, with the problems and the challenges before you will and probably more than you will. Right? You're back to your NASA example. Yep. And uh, you know, then you're going to be able to address these things before they become critical problems. You know, they, they won't even be problems. There'll be a discussion and a solution, right, that nobody will even remember. Man, and, and that just, that got me. So, you know, one of the things that, that I really enjoy is helping people get ready for interviews. Mm-hmm. And the one piece of advice I give folks that seems to shock, especially the first time we went through the process, is remember one thing. You're not the only one being interviewed here. Oh, You're interviewing good, yeah. them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if it doesn't seem like a fit now, don't take the job. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going to get any better, is it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. it, it, so very you know, seldom. Very seldom, I should say. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you get that, that feeling that this guy is going to be a jerk to work for, that this lady is going to be overbearing, chances are pretty good. You know, because during an interview, everybody wants to put their best foot forward, right? <laughs> And isn't and it funny? The, right? Isn't it <laughs> yeah. funny? You, if you asked a hundred people, if we just polled a hundred people right now, and said, "What are the chances of you encountering anybody randomly, and expect them to change over the next year?" And it, it, almost universally, they said, "No, they're not going to change." And yet, at the same time, in our most intimate and, and valuable relationships at work, life partners, all these things, we expect people to change. <laughs> right? <laughs> change is hard work. Not everybody's going to do it. So I know I agree with you. You should be. Right, you should be fine as much as possible if you're finding the right fit. And asking the questions is the key to it, isn't it? Oh that's, yeah, that's a danger. We we have to make sure that we st- and again we have to train ourselves to do that. Um, that was a downfall in martial arts. I remember uh, going to the sales seminar of all things, and it was very interesting because the guy said, you know, you guys scare people away all the time. You know, if someone calls you or walks in, he said, first of all, if someone walks into your dojo, they want what you have. And this guy mm-hmm. came from the car, car sales world. He said, we wish we had that advantage, right? Right. So at any rate, he said, you're scaring them away. You're telling them how tough it is. You're telling them how tough you are. You're telling them this and that. And you tell them what you're going to do, blah, blah, blah. He said, how about asking them? Ask why they're here. Ask what they're looking for. So we actually did it um, where, oh, God, I'm dating myself again. Remember those things we used to have on the desk that actually had paper? And then there were these things that you used to write with that... You know, left a, 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 a material on the paper. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Anyway, we called it a Sharpie, right? And we said, yeah. so we would write, ask in big letters on our planners every month to remind us, you know, when that person sitting across from us, instead of just telling them things, like, let's start asking some questions. And then we can see if, if we're a fit, if we can satisfy their needs. And, and, you know, most of the time we could. And that was right. pretty interesting. No, I, I like that. I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, with my background, I'm I'm a little hesitant to buy all in on it because I think there's a uh, there's some value uh, to the opposite effect, right? And and again, this is my background as a marine. There's been some studies on on Marine Corps advertising and why it's so effective. And you know, our message basically is: we're the biggest, we're the baddest, we're the few, we're the proud. You can't be one of us, but just in case you think you can, here's how to get in hold of us. Yeah, see, there's an interesting thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna prove the power of this. I'm gonna I'm gonna use you as an experiment right now. Why do you think that works so effectively? See, I'm asking you a question, right? Why do you think that it works so effectively for the Marine Corps and and organizations like that? Well, because you got to have that mindset to fit in. 
go a little deeper. I think there's I think there's something deeper there. Why else might it? Well, why is it so important that you fit in right away? Well, for, okay. So personally, for me, why it rang to me was it was the challenge. You know, my my uh, mindset is the worst thing you can do is tell me I can't do something, so I'm going to go do it. Why don't you want just everybody showing up? Oh well, that's uh, for for that. I mean, again, it's it's the selectivism. You want to be part of something elite. Well, there you go. And your life depends on that, right? Right. So you're, you're qualifying it. And so there's a purpose behind that. See what I'm saying? But the point is, see, and, and, and I was messing with you a little bit, but I'm no, also, I was seeking understanding, you know? Yeah. My questions were coming from your responses, you see, and that's, that's right. the skill that uh, we try to share with leaders. I'm listening very carefully what you're saying. I'm trying to figure out, okay, so what's underneath this? What's underneath that? And I'm yeah. not asking rhetorical questions usually. Sometimes it's good. You know, lawyers say don't ask a question unless you know the answer. There's a place for that. But also, there's a place to be very open-minded. Like I said, as you started to go, what I, what I kept hearing from you is that, you know what? You don't want everybody in the Marines. You only right. want the people that are embracing that challenge, right? Now, you flip that over to our martial arts center. Um, we, were, we dedicated ourselves to being a personal development center. We, right. wanted, we wanted everybody. We didn't want to scare somebody away, right. you see? Yeah. So we wanted to be more inclusive. So there's the thing, right? It, but, I, but I wouldn't have understood what you were talking about unless I asked those questions. And right. that, there's, there's the point. Leaders need to, and here's the thing too, there's this cliche that I absolutely hate, <laughs> that leaders need to know all the answers. Right. Hell they do. No, they don't. In fact, the guy who knows all the answers usually is an arrogant jerk, right? <laughs> usually is the blowhard that really doesn't know anything. The yeah. leader doesn't need to know the answers, usually. It very seldom needs to know the answers. The leader needs to know how to formulate the right questions in that moment. Yes. You see, and that's a process, so, yeah. <laughs> well, and again, that's one of the other odd things that uh, that they taught us in boot camp that I didn't get right off the bat is, is you know, we always had these inspections, and part of the inspection was, was knowledge. They'd come ask mm -hmm. you all these questions. And the one thing they told us, if you don't know the answer, say, I don't know the answer, but I will look it up. Mm -hmm. If you give me an answer, then you'd better be right. But if you don't know the answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it was, uh, that was where I first, and then later on I was reading about Einstein, and I, I, I saw his quote, uh, I guess the way the story goes, is somebody asked him to uh, recite pi, and he gave the standard uh, 3.14. Oh, yeah. Like, how far can you go? He goes, well, that's as far as I need to go. It's like, you can't go any more places. He goes, well, hold on a second. He goes, he gets a book. Yeah. And, and, and they ask him, it's like, you're one of the greatest mathematicians on the planet and you can't remember pi past two places. It's like, why waste my brain power memorizing it when I can look it up? Exactly. Exactly. But <laughs> so, isn't that fascinating? Now we're touching on educational leadership. One of the big problems that's happened now for the first time since these studies have been done, right? Young people, as, as a rule, their, their ability to go look for answers has diminished mm. radically over the last few years, right? It's too instantaneous. Either they can find it too quickly on Google and they don't go past that first level, right? <laughs> I mean, I think Google is amazing, but Google should be the first step. Okay, now I, I saw this quote. I see this book. I, now I want to go read that book. Now I want to learn about the person that wrote that book, you see? Um, yeah. And they don't go that deep, or they just turn and ask their teachers, and the teachers give them the answer. Or, or even worse, and I'm going to activate my phone here, so I'm going to make sure it's turned off, but they always just say, hey, Siri, what? <laughs> 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 and, 
<laughs> right? <laughs> so, For, so. Fortunately, Siri doesn't understand my main accent, so I, w- Siri and I have a very difficult relationship. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I just saw that just the other day. Like, like somebody was, I was at the airport, actually, and they were watching on their phone, or no, on the TV was, it was a daggone uh, Jeopardy, right? Right. And like as the questions were popping up, this joker was like, hey, Siri, what's such and such? Oh, no, really? And I'm sitting here like, really? If you just waited five seconds or take a stab at it. Yeah, (laughs) right. That defeats the whole purpose. You're supposed to think, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's terrible. Well, man, we're coming up. uh, We're approaching an hour here. And uh, I want to. Holy cow. uh, Yeah, I know. Right. Uh, I warned everybody at the beginning. This was going to be a nice, easy conversation because Jim and I have talked quite a bit. Um, we, you know, we talked about the, the burden of command stuff. We've talked about, uh, your, your, uh, sensei leader movement and the trips coming up to Africa. Uh, we talked about a lot. We talked about your love for uh, Patriots football. And, uh, <laughs> is there anything that you would like to share with my listeners now that we haven't touched on yet? You, you know, when, whenever anyone presses me for like a summation or something like that. And, and usually most of my presentations, I end this way too. You know, when I'm pressed to summarize leadership in one idea, and you just use the word, leadership is sharing. A leader shares. You know, the rest of the discussion really is, is about exactly what is it that we're going to share and how are we going to do it. And that's what the Sensei Leader Movement's all about. We're, trying, we're just trying to facilitate, help people through that process and do that. So, you know, there it is. It's, it, lovely to to talk with you we got to get you back on walking the walk as well and and i love what you're doing i love this podcast i've listened to a couple episodes now and we're sharing that out and uh really appreciate the good work you're doing we we need more people like you out here you know help helping develop the next well the next generation of leaderships no matter what your age right right (laughs) yeah 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 no well i appreciate it brother and 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 listeners uh i'll have the information to get a hold of uh, of Jim, uh, social media accounts, all that good stuff in the show notes. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, please make sure that you uh, subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your platform of choice. We're on Google, we're on iTunes, and in the Podbean app itself. If you have any questions for Jim, if you have any ideas for future guests, uh, feel free to reach out to me at burden.command. It's just B U R D E N dot command at gmail.com and i'll get those questions out to jim and again jim thanks for listening really appreciate it and definitely going to have you back on in the future thank you lynn it was an absolute honor really yeah no appreciate it and listeners go ahead uh do what i was telling you before hit me with the email addresses and above all else make sure you keep those shields up and we'll talk to you the next time Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. 
Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric acid. Electric acid.